Once upon a time, the U.S. had it all worked out. Speak softly and carry a big stick. As we all learned in the seventh grade, those were the words of Teddy Roosevelt, his wise approach to the world. There was just one thing about it, and that was about the big stick. He didn't say how big it should be and how fast we should swing it and at who and how often. And those are questions that are bedeviling the United States right now. When they're cutting off the heads of Americans in a Middle East that is in a spin cycle of disintegration. And what is the U.S. supposed to do about this? And with its big stick, which is the strongest military on earth, run away, get more deeply involved, stay on the sidelines? And how is that speaking softly thing really working out? Well, this sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will argue for and against this motion. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then you, our live audience here in New York, votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, first welcome Aaron David Miller. And Aaron David Miller, uh, you uh, are at the Wilson Center. You served for two decades at the Department of State, helping formulate U.S. policy on the Middle East and the Arab-Israeli peace process, an aspiring peacemaker. Uh, In 1990, though, you were working with Secretary of State James Baker, who said to you rather famously, uh, Aaron, if I had another life, I would want to be a Middle East specialist just like you, because it would mean guaranteed permanent employment. (laughs) Was he right about that? Baker Baker was one smart guy. He, He had no idea just how right he was. All right, thanks, Aaron David Miller. And Aaron, your partner is? Paul Pillar. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paul Pillar. Paul, welcome. And you are also arguing for the motion flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. You are a senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown, 28 years as an analyst at the CIA during the last five years specializing in the Near East and South Africa. You once said an interesting thing that in major foreign policy decisions, though you were at the CIA, you said intelligence is not the decisive factor. It's actually something about the leader himself, his own strategic sense, his lessons from history, his personal experience, even his personal neuroses. Is that true for President Obama? Well, the president hasn't invited me to the White House for one of those chats over a beer to talk it over. But uh, like all of our other presidents, he's a human being, and he's a political animal, too. And so the answer, John, is yes. All right. Thank you. Paul Pillar. I just got a note in my ear that I said something wrong about Paul. What was it? Did I say South Africa? Let me just pretend that I didn't say any of that. And I'm just going to read it so that it can be edited. Wouldn't it be great for everybody if life was like this? (laughs) You just rewind and all of your mistakes went away. Well, I get to do it very briefly. (laughs) I'm just going to say this. Uh, Specializing in the Northeast, specializing in the... (laughs) (laughs) Specializing in the Near East and South Asia. (laughs) Thank you for your patience. 
It's so embarrassing. The only way to, be, to handle the embarrassment is to pretend I'm not embarrassed at all. Our motion is this. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And we have two teams arguing against the motion. Please, folks, let's welcome Michael Duran. Michael, you're a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and prior to that, uh, you were a professor at Princeton. You also served as uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, in Public Diplomacy. You were a senior director for the Near East and North Africa uh, at the National Security Council. Um, And we were listening to a a recent interview you gave where you actually advised people not to take up Middle Eastern studies. Uh, Why is that? Um, because uh, it's so contentious that uh, if you say anything serious, you'll be deeply hated. Uh, so you, you have a choice between being boring and anodyne and, and liked or, or serious and hated. But you're not going to be boring and anodyne. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going uh, to be anodyne and loved. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Mike Duran, ladies and gentlemen. And, Mike, your partner is? My partner is... Wall Street Journal and Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, Brett Stevens. Brett Stevens, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Brett, you are also arguing against the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Um, Your your background has just been described, so I'm going to skip straight to your first book, which was called America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder, coming out in November. Um, And... uh, Joe Lieberman said of this book, it's worth buying even if you only read chapter nine. (laughs) What's in chapter nine? Uh, Well, the other uh, nine chapters are terrific, but in chapter nine, uh, you get the world as I see it in 2019 when Hillary Clinton is president and wondering why she ever wanted that job in the first place. (laughs) So it's 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 a prophetic novel? We'll see. All right, I guess not. Thanks very much. This is the team arguing against the motion. So I want to remind you, this is a debate. It's a contest. And one team will win and one team will lose. And that decision will be made by you, our live audience, by your vote, both before you hear the arguments and again afterwards. And the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So let's get on to the preliminary vote. If you go to those keypads at your seat on the right-hand side, uh, there are a lot of keys on them, but you only need to pay attention to one, two, and three. Push number one if you agree with the motion at this point that this side's arguing for. And push number two if you disagree with the motion, uh, this side. And push number three if you're undecided, which is a perfectly honorable position. You can ignore the other keys. They're not live. And if you feel you made an error, uh, just correct yourself and it'll lock in your last vote. And we'll take about another 10 seconds. Then at the end of the debate, we do the same thing and we get the results in about a minute minute and a half, something like that. They'll be carried out to me, and I will announce them, and I'll announce our winner. Okay. On to round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. They are uninterrupted. They are seven minutes each. 
Here to speak first for the motion and making his way to the lectern, Paul Piller. He's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and at the Brookings Institution. He served 28 years in the U.S. intelligence community. He is here to argue for the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Piller. Thank you, John. Uh, Flexing muscles, that sounds like posturing, doesn't it? And posturing doesn't sound like a very good way to conduct foreign policy. It's not. But look, we know what this motion is all about. It's about the use of the most salient form of muscle the U.S. has, and that's military force. And so that's what Aaron and I are going to talk about. We're not pacifists. The military instrument has a legitimate role, carefully used in certain times and places, but unless we carefully consider all the costs and risks and limitations and consequences and reactions to our use of military force, it can, and unfortunately very often in the past, has made things worse. Now, Aaron's going to talk later about some of the specific issues we've got facing us in the Middle East. I want to start by talking about how we ought to think about this question. We hear a lot of if-only kind of arguments, if only we used force here or used more force, or if only we had used more force or put our troops in here or there, something better would happen. Lots of speculation, lots of counterfactuals. We don't have to dwell just with speculation and counterfactuals. We have a real record out there of having done a lot of application of military force in, in this region. Uh, data point number one, in fact, it's a whole string of data points, was, of course, the invasion of Iraq, which extended an exp- expedition for another eight and a half years. That made things a lot worse for the United States, considering the trillion dollars of cost and the casualties and everything else. It made things worse for the region because it was a negative example of the so-called birth pangs of democracy and because it stimulated the kinds of sectarian conflict and consciousness we see in Syria and elsewhere. And it was certainly bad for Iraq, which t- where it touched off a civil war that has never ended and also gave rise to various forms of extremism, that group ISIS or Islamic State or ISIL or whatever you want to call it that we're so worried about today, it was born under a different name as a direct response to our invasion of Iraq and the civil war it touched off. ISIL did not exist before we went into Iraq. And to talk about Iraq in the past is not just dwelling in the past. It raises the very issues, which Aaron will go into more, that we're still facing today. Now, one thing you hear often in the sort of if-only category is if only we had somehow kept troops there uh, beyond the uh, eight and a half years, uh, that somehow things would have worked out differently. Now, set aside the question of how that could have been done when we had an Iraqi government that was determined to get us out, and in the previous administration under Mr. Bush was the one that set the withdrawal deadline. But the fact is we did try to up the ante militarily. We had the so-called surge. You remember that? And it, along with some other factors, like disillusionment with the extremists among Iraqi Sunni Arabs, temporarily brought down the level of violence. But the surge failed in its more fundamental political objective of providing the space for Iraqi politicians to reach an accommodation and build a new and more stable Iraqi political order. They never did that, and we have the mess that we see today in Iraq. And anyone who thinks otherwise, I think, has to answer the question, if eight and a half years were not enough, 
then how many years would be enough? Let me just mention one other thing in the past briefly, because it comes under a different administration, uh, the intervention in Libya. Now, there you already have a, a civil war going, but we used force to help overthrow Gaddafi. And look at the mess that Libya is in now, about the closest thing we have in the region to a total anarchy. And I might remind you, whatever you might have thought of the late Mr. Gaddafi, years before any use of force or even threatening the use of force, he got out of the international terrorism business and he gave up his unconventional weapons programs, leaving him as a sort of quaint and curious dictator, but frankly not much of a threat to U.S. interests. So what's going on here? Why do we have these unfortunate results? Well, I think there are several patterns that we've seen again and again. One is military force is good to accomplish a lot of things. It's pretty poor to accomplish a lot of other things. The U.S. military is a great hammer, but some of the thorniest problems we've got in the Middle East simply are not nails. Building political and social order is not primarily a matter of killing people. One's a matter of construction. The other's a matter of destruction. What has mattered again and again in places like Syria and Iraq and Libya and elsewhere is political will and political culture, and the will to reach political accommodation. And that can't be injected through the barrel of a gun. Closely related to that is the principle that we need the people in the region and the players in the region to become owners of any solution. If it's just outsiders, whether it's the United States or someone else, then whatever good effect may be brought about as long as we've got the strength there, like we had 168,000 troops at one point in Iraq, is not going to last, just like the benefits of the surge didn't last. Another thing that's happened when we've flexed our muscle in this way in the Middle East is the United States has been taking sides in someone else's internal conflict, which in that part of the world is often defined in sectarian or ethnic terms. And that's no good either. It's an invitation for the other side to get more involved. And for the United States, we have no interest, no national interest, in taking sides in someone's sectarian civil war. And finally, again and again, we see our use of our muscle engendering the reaction of hatred and anti-Americanism and extremism and terrorism, partly because of the inevitable collateral damage, partly because we're who we are, the superpower, hated, because we come in with our boots trampling on someone else's ground. So again and again, we see the reaction, including when Osama bin Laden was initially radicalized as a result of U.S. troops going into Saudi Arabia, or when ISIS was born after we went into Iraq, or today when ISIS is committing those grisly murders and justifying it by saying it's in response to something we've done. So the Middle East is a pretty messy place. It can get messier, and to prevent us from making it even messier, we have to ask not what we would hope would happen or wish would happen with the application of military force, but to look at what we've done in the past and how often it has, in fact, made things worse. Thank you. Thank you, Paul Pillar. And that's our motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And our next debater will be speaking against the motion. I'd like to welcome to the lectern Brett Stevens. He is a deputy editorial page editor and foreign affairs columnist for the Wall Street Journal and author of the forthcoming book, America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. Please welcome Brett Stevens. Well, thank you, John. Um, 
It's an honor, and I want to say this with, with real sincerity, to be debating two very distinguished uh, public servants, each of whom has done a lot for this country. Um, how distinguished, you might ask? So distinguished that they are prepared to take an intellectual bullet tonight, if not for their country, then for this audience, in order to defend an implausible, illogical, and frankly nonsensical proposition that neither of them can possibly believe is true. The, par- the proposition we are debating this evening is this. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse, by which we mean intervening militarily. Notice that it falls to Paul and Aaron to defend that statement categorically. No exceptions. They must convince you that no matter what the circumstance, U.S. military intervention in the Middle East cannot be the answer. But also notice this. Michael and I are not arguing the opposite case. We are not saying bomb every time and everything. We are not saying whatever the question, war is the answer. This is a caricature position, and all of you in this room are frankly too smart for that. Right? (laughs) What we are saying is that in the Middle East, as in the world, as in life itself, you take it on a case-by-case basis. You look at the circumstances. You distinguish between the preferable and the necessary, the merely important versus the absolutely vital. What we are arguing is not dogma and not absolutism. We are arguing the case for pragmatism. Ladies and gentlemen, ask yourselves this. If you were the president, if you were the president, and you were in a position to use force to prevent the massacre by ISIS, of the Yazidi people, would you authorize force? Would you do what Barack Obama did? Would you send flights of F-18s to relieve the siege of Sinjar Mountain? Or would that simply have made things worse? When the other week, tens of thousands of Kurds faced death at the hands of ISIS, would you have used air power, as President Obama did, to help them get to safety? Or would you have left them to their own devices? Would military force in that circumstance make things worse? Ladies and gentlemen, if you had been George H.W. Bush in the spring of 1991, when Saddam Hussein was besieging the Kurds in northern Iraq, would you have launched Operation Provide, uh, Provide Comfort to save them? Or did that just make things worse? Now, I know what you're thinking, and I know what they're gonna say. These aren't really military interventions. They're quasi-humanitarian rescue efforts, but that's not true. When bombs are being dropped, that's not humanitarian work. American fighter pilots are not NGO workers. GPS-guided bombs are not care packages. All of this is an example of flexing America's muscles, of using the American military in the service of a good cause. So the question before you tonight is, are you for it? at least occasionally, or are you against it in every circumstance? Now let's take another example. When Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in the summer of 1990 and George H.W. Bush said, this aggression will not stand, was he wrong to oppose it? Would the world have been a better place if Saddam had simply swallowed Kuwait whole? Is that the kind of world that you want to live in? Maybe if you're Vladimir Putin, that's the world you would like to live in. But I'm asking you, the audience, aren't we better off that that aggression was opposed 
just as Bill Clinton opposed Serbian aggression in Bosnia and Kosovo. Now, we remember the 1990s as this halcyon period for America, and indeed it was. And it was a great period because the world understood the U.S. was prepared to enforce the rules of international order with force when those rules were flagrantly violated by tin pot dictators with genocidal tendencies. Now, you heard from Paul, and soon you're going to hear from Aaron. And they will tell you, yes, but what about the intervention in Lebanon in 1983, and how did that turn out? And what about Iraq, as Paul just mentioned, and Afghanistan, and maybe the prospect of bombing Iran in the event that nuclear negotiations go nowhere? Let me make two points about this. Noting that military interventions and wars can go horribly wrong is not an argument in this debate. It is totally beside the point. World War I may have been totally pointless, but World War II was not pointless. Like everything in life, there are just wars and unjust wars, smart wars and dumb wars, smart wars that are badly executed and dumb wars that are well executed. And the second point is this. Telling us that actions have consequences, particularly unintended consequences, tells us nothing about the consequences of inaction. Because what we are seeing today, contrary to what Paul just mentioned, in the Middle East, the near collapse of the Iraqi government, mass executions, the fall of cities like Mosul, Tikrit, and Fallujah, the vortex in Syria, the progressive radicalization of the Syrian opposition to the point that even al-Qaeda isn't radical enough, the beheading of, of journalists, millions of refugees straining the resources of Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey, all of this is not the consequence of flexing America's muscles. It is the consequence of a president, pre, presidential decision in the last four years not to flex those muscles. Each of us in our everyday lives know that every action carries risks, but there is also a price to be paid when we do nothing, when you don't make the phone call, when you don't challenge your colleague, when you don't make the move to another job. Foreign policy is not that different. Ladies and gentlemen, it would be nice to live in a world where the best policy is to do nothing, to look away, to always choose the peaceful route, to offer kindness and get kindness in return, to always take the diplomatic option. But you and I and they don't live in that world. We live in the world as it is, not the one we'd like to pretend it to be. And in that world as it is, you sometimes need to flex your muscles, prudently, discriminately, effectively, yes. But to choose simply never to exercise those muscles at all is an absurd motion. I urge you to reject it. Thank you. Thank you, Brett Stevens. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. I'd like to welcome Aaron David Miller. He is Vice President for New Initiatives at the Wilson Center. He served in the Department of State for two decades and has a new book out next week, The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. He's debating for the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron David Miller. John, um, thank you very much. It's an honor and privilege to be here. It's an honor to, um, to debate um, Mike uh, and Brett, uh, friendly but formidable uh, opponents. 
It's wonderful to be here with Paul Piller, who brings a measure of honesty and clarity to this, to this debate, sometimes controversial, but it is sorely needed. I, I really do find myself, unfortunately, sadly, paradoxically, in the anomalous position of agreeing with almost everything Brett said. And at the risk of never being invited back to IQ2, <laughs> I, I have to say at the outset, that this is a national conversation that is simply too important to be constrained and confined to simple propositions. I will defend the proposition, but the nuance is clear, and Brett made the case, and that is to say there is smart muscle flexing, the effective application, formidable application of American military power, and there is dumb muscle flexing. Muscle flexing. And that anomaly, that inconsistency, has to be reflected not just in the debate, but in the actual execution of policy. If the application of American military power had always been smart, we wouldn't be having this conversation, and I'd be applauding Michael and, and Brett for everything that they've said in their compelling arguments, nor would I have ever agreed to debate and argue for the proposition. But sadly, that has not been the case. Muscle flexing has on balance, in my judgment, as my inestimable partner Paul Pillar has mentioned, it's messy, and it's, for the United States, been, on balance, a very unhappy enterprise, and it is likely to remain unhappy as well. This is not to say, and I want to repeat this, for my own personal credibility and what remains of my professional reputation, <laughs> the reality is that the application of military power can be effective, can be appropriate. Bush 41, for whom I worked, pushing Saddam out of Kuwait and go read Baker's memoir on why Bush didn't continue that operation uh, to Baghdad. Read Baker's prescient memoir about the risks, the limitations, the constraints. Bush 43's application of military power in Afghanistan, air power, local allies, good intel, managed in a matter of months to defeat al-Qaeda and to decimate the Taliban, at least for the moment. But in recent years, I would argue to you, respectfully and humbly, we have not been nearly as effective as in years past. In fact, I would argue to you that the U.S. is like some modern-day Gulliver, wandering around in a part of the world does not understand, constrained by its own illusions, by smaller powers whose interests are not its own all the time, and in search of Hollywood endings to a region that is broken, angry, and, and dysfunctional and offers up not solutions and definitive outcomes at all, but just outcomes. And do not let our debating opponents try to persuade you that this is a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. I worked for R's and D's, I voted for R's and D's, and I can tell you with some authority that muscle flexing, dumb muscle flexing, is a bipartisan <laughs> as well as equal opportunity employer. Twain quipped, and he was right, famously, that history does not repeat. It does not repeat. History rhymes. And it's the rhythmic patterns that you need to pay attention to when it comes to smart application of American military power. Let me identify four, perhaps five, cautionary tales with respect to why you need to support our rendition of this emotion, of this motion. Number one, there is muscle flexing as overreach. Paul has referred to Iraq, what I call not to trivialize the men and women who served, who died, 
and who suffered life-crippling injuries from which they will never, ever recover. This turned out to be, in my judgment, with all due respect, a trillion-dollar social science experiment that fundamentally failed. It cost 6,000 Americans dead, trillions expended, most of our credibility in tatters. And for what? A standard of victory was not could we win, but when could we leave? And extrication is not a metric that you want to use to judge the performance of the most consequential power on earth. That's muscle flexing as overreach. Then you have muscle flexing as bluster. That is to say, talk without action. And I would argue, even though I have supported the president's willful refusal to militarize the American role in Syria in order to defeat Assad, ISIS is a different story now, that was an example of talk without action. That is dumb muscle flexing because it erodes and undermines credibility. Presidential rhetoric has to be rooted in reality. If you say it, you got to mean it, and you have to follow through. Then we have what I call one-off muscle flexing. That's Libya. That's where we, we in NATO took eight months to take care of Colonel Q, but without much regard or thought to the implications of what would come next, and we lost the first sitting ambassador since 1979, Chris Stevens as a consequence. Fourth, there is split the difference muscle flexing. I support the president's strategy in Syria but it is replete with anomalies and contradictions that are going to be extremely difficult to maintain. We strike ISIS, we essentially empower Assad. We try to take out Assad, we leave the field open to ISIS. Caliphates in Damascus with Baghdad next. And fifth, and this is why this is deadly serious, what is happening tonight, this conversation, is not some sort of academic exercise. The mother of all military interventions may be not far away. If negotiations do not produce a comprehensive accord, if sanctions do not work with respect to the mullahs in Tehran, if the mullahs accelerate their program, this president has set his own red line. He will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. We have committed ourselves to the Israelis repeatedly over the last several years not to preempt we will do it for them. So I urge you, when you vote, think about the consequences and implications, both for and against, of the application of military power. Let me conclude by simply saying, neither this administration that has been risk-averse or the last one that has been too risk-ready has got it right. The next time we apply military force, we need to think through how, why, All right. Aaron and David where. Miller, I'm sorry your time is up. Thank you very much. And that is our motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And our final opening statement will be against this motion. I'd like to welcome Mike Duran. He's a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. He served as senior director for the Near East and North Africa at the National Security Council. Please welcome Mike Duran. Thank you, John. Um, and... Uh, Thank all of you for coming. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's an honor. It truly is an honor to uh, be debating um, Aaron and Paul and to, be, uh, uh, and to be on the same team with uh, somebody as uh, talented and, uh, um, and uh, silver-tongued as Brett Stevens. Uh, handsome. Handsome, silver-tongued, and talented. Um, I, I, thought, uh, 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 I thought that uh, 
what Aaron just said was, uh, was very wise and very gracious. Um, I noted, as you did, um, that he uh, accepted our victory. He, <laughs> he, he, agreed, he agreed with everything that Brett said. Uh, and so I would very graciously like, to, in, in, in complete reciprocity, in the spirit of reciprocity, I accept, uh, I accept your admission of defeat. Uh, and I accept, your, uh, and I accept your, your challenge to discuss this. Um, in terms other than the, um, than, than the motion. Uh, look, it's true. Um, uh, it's true that we have to have wise use of force and, uh, uh, as opposed to dumb use of force. I think we can all agree to that. Uh, if we're going to say, though, um, as I think Paul and Aaron are, that uh, we, need to, we, need to, uh, we need to have a kind of bias in favor of restraint, then you're saying one of two things. You're saying that action is either going to, military action is either going to destroy some beneficial process that is ongoing, or you're saying that it is going to generate some new bad process that, that, that doesn't exist. Um, and I think that that proposition, uh, the, the proposition basically that Paul laid out is the one that President Obama accepted when he took office in 2009. And he, he made policy toward the, United, toward the Middle East from 2009 up until yesterday or um, a couple of weeks ago on the basis that restraint is almost always better than, um, than the use of military action. And I look at the last at the last uh, five years as a kind of referendum on that proposition, and I think it comes up, uh, and it comes up faulty, and I'd like to explain to you why. Uh, so what do we see over the last five years? We saw, uh, first of all, in Iraq, we saw the Maliki government become increasingly sectarian, increasingly dependent on Iraq, and increasingly dictatorial, uh, and it alienated, this, it alienated the Sunni uh, Arabs living in Al-Anbar province and, uh, and in the north. Now, Paul, Paul said that the surge did not stop the civil war. It just lowered the violence a little bit. It's not true. It's not true. It, it, the surge created a political space that Maliki could have used to have, to have created a more, inclusive, uh, uh, a more inclusive government. It needed, though, that process needed continued American pressure, which the Obama administration, which the Obama administration would not apply. Um, and, and so David Petraeus handed to the Obama administration, and, uh, and he handed to Maliki an opportunity that was, uh, uh, that was lost. Now, that's what was happening in Iraq. So the civil war started up again uh, in, a, in a vicious sectarian fashion, alienated the Sunnis. Meanwhile, in Syria, another civil war started, which had nothing to do whatsoever with the application of American force. It started completely as a result of indigenous processes. But there, too, we have a sectarian Shiite government aligned with Iran that is, that is, uh, uh, that is destroying Sunnis. Now, think about the, think about the, the, uh, the extent of the destruction in Syria. Syria is a country of around 20 million people. Nine million of them, possibly even 10 million of them, are now displaced. That's almost half the entire population of the country has been displaced. Three million of them have been driven out of, uh, have been driven out of Syria and are now refugees in the surrounding countries and uh, uh, risking to destabilize those, uh, destabilize those countries. Uh, let's, not even mention, let's not even mention the uh, systematic rape, the, the torture, the dropping of bombs onto... Uh, onto bread lines as women and children wait to buy uh, to buy bread by the Assad regime and supported by 
and supported by Iran. So if you want to say that, the, uh, that, that using military force is going to stop some kind of uh, beneficial process that is ongoing, you can't make the argument. Because if you look at what's happening, the Middle East is spiraling out of control. And that's why President Obama finally had to apply force, because there was this process spiraling out of force. Now, back in 2012, his National Security Council went to him and said, you have to apply force. You have to arm the Syrian uh, opposition. This was David Petraeus, uh, Hillary Clinton, Leon Panettis, uh, and so forth. And President Obama said, no, I won't do it. Now, at the same time uh, as this argument was going on, Sarah Palin was asked what she thought about this. Uh, Sarah Palin, the, 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 the war was going on, and, and she was asked, should we arm the Syrian opposition like the National Security Council wants to? And she said, no. Uh, she said, uh, my answer is, let Allah sort them out. Right? Let the Sunnis and Shiites kill each other. Now, that is basically the policy that President Obama followed. He didn't call it that, but that's what he did. He let Allah sort it out. That is the policy that Paul Pillar and Aaron David Miller are calling for. They're saying, let Allah sort it out. The Sarah Palin doctrine. We know... (laughs) We now... We now know that the Sarah Palin strategy does not work. It does not work. We have to use military power. And we have to use military power. Now, Paul, Paul Pillar said something interesting. He said, you, cannot, you, you can't make people increase their will by use of military force. This is patently not true. The fact of the matter is that what we have in the Middle East are countries run by mafias, basically, or organizations like ISIS that are, first and foremost, mafia organizations. If somebody goes to the United States and beheads its citizens on television, and the United States says, I'm not going to do anything, it sends a message to all of our allies in the region that if we're not going to go take action when our citizens are beheaded, we're certainly not going to come help them. And that encourages them to go and cut a deal with the mafia rather than showing the will to fight. If we don't put skin in the game, and skin in the game means military force, then we will, not, then we will undermine the will of our allies whom we need. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Duran. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. So remember how you voted when the evening began, and we're going to have you vote again after the debate concludes. And once again, I want to emphasize that the team whose numbers have moved the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Now on to round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. We have heard from each of the teams now, two teams of two. The team arguing for the motion, Paul Piller and Aaron David Miller, uh, made a presentation in which they said they are not against all use of force all of the time. They are against the use of force in a dumb way, that force has a downside, and that downside is unintended consequences that have costs. They ran through situations in history where this has already occurred, most recently uh, Iraq, Uh, And uh, in 2003, a situation they said that gave us ISIS, they point out that once the U.S. gets into the the Middle East militarily, that it's in a situation of taking sides, and that doesn't win us friends. It it produces anti-American sentiment, and it ends up having... uh, 
the United States pushed around by small-time dictators. The team arguing against the motion, Michael Duran and Brett Stevens, uh, argue uh, themselves, they say, that Inaction also has unintended consequences, and they say also that that has been seen in the disintegration of Iraq and in the creation of ISIS. Their argument is that um, uh, a U.S. that is uh, seen to be passive uh, looks weak. It's an invitation to rogue states to act even more roguely. Um, they uh, blame. Um, they, they basically say that the the argument that. Restraint most of the time is the right option is actually the wrong option, and they uh, also make a case based on history. So um, what I'm finding, there's a, there's a worrying amount of agreement between the two sides here uh, on, the, on the basic... Uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 basic, the basic point that um, you're, you're uh, only in favor of force when it's intelligent, and you're in favor of force when it's intelligent... Um, <laughs> So we can all go home now, <laughs> except that I do, I do think that there's actually a debate here. And as, that, as Aaron David Miller pointed out, there's a national conversation about this, and that's what I am here to help us tease out, because there, there were points that, made, that were made in, case, in examples of specific cases. And I think what we want to do is, is go look at some of these specifics, because we all know what we're talking about. We're talking about where do we go from here and what's happened in the recent past. Um, and I want to I look at the fact that President Obama... Uh, did indeed take a relatively restrained uh, view on the situation in Syria and Iraq until August of 2014, and which time he stepped up the military force. And that makes me want to ask the side that's arguing for the motion. Did the president, was the president once on your side on this argument, and then he switched to the other side? Aaron David Miller. Again, we're constrained and confined by a motion that is, um, in many respects, really not appropriate to the national conversation that has to be had. This president, frankly, is risk-averse, except in one area, where he has emerged to be George W. Bush on steroids. And that is the protection, that is the protection uh, of, uh, of the continental United States. He's killed ten times the number uh, of, um, however you want to describe them, terrorists, militants, extremists with predator drones. He's expanded the drone war to Pakistan, to Yemen, to Somalia. He killed bin Laden. He dismantled al Qaeda so, core. But let me stop you before My, you go too far down that road, because I think we see where you're going. So are you saying that he has been uh, a muscle flexor and that it has what, not made things worse? What I'm saying is the reason he interceded several weeks ago is because the organizing principle of the nation's foreign policy is the protection of the homeland. 9-11 was the second bloodiest day in American history exceeded by only one other day, September 17, 1862, when more Americans were killed in a single afternoon in the Battle of Antietam than any other day. That is the organizing principle. That's why public opinion, frankly, has become risk-ready, not because we believe or the president believes that he is somehow going to put the Iraqi and Syrian Humpty Dumpty back together again. I don't go to Brett he, Stevens. He can't. Brett Stevens. Look, I mean, we're all happier in this room, I suspect, as New Yorkers, that Osama bin Laden is dead. What did it require to kill him? It wasn't uh, um, smart diplomacy. It wasn't flowers dropped from 30,000 feet. It was a team of Navy SEALs deployed from a uh, military base in eastern Afghanistan who went in and killed him. Are we better off for him being dead or not? I think inarguably we are. 
Psychologically, we are. We're a healthier country because we killed the enemy who wounded us so deeply. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to sort of play by Aaron's rules because Aaron, uh, I adore Aaron, and Aaron has realized the hollowness of his proposition, but I came here to debate this motion, no, which is something that's, that, that's unfair. That, that Paul, that, that, that Paul is, is, is sticking to. We Actually, Brett, I, I have to say you can win the debate taking that position, but it, it's a rather sterile sterile position to take in a situation where we're really trying to have a national conversation about this. So I say resurrect that argument at the end to win, but get into the spirit of really trying to figure out what should we do right now, if, well, if, if, well, you, well, if then, you could. Then, and, and, okay, I, and I, take your, I let, take your point that okay. I, I totally take your point that we phrased it in such a way that it's too absolute for them to win. Let me, you know, Aaron said something very interesting somewhere in his talk, he, I think towards the end. He said, we have to find some middle ground between the overambitions of the freedom agenda, of the Bush doctrine, and perhaps the, the lack of ambition um, of what was the first five years of the, uh, of the Obama presidency. What is the Goldilocks formula. That's essentially, you would agree with me, that's what we're looking to do. And let me make, make two brief suggestions. One of them is this. The purpose of American foreign policy should not be, particularly in the Middle East, should not be to make our dreams come true because your dreams will never come true when it comes to the Middle East, not Israel-Palestine, not democracy in Iraq, not development in Afghanistan, not women's rights in Saudi Arabia, not gay rights in Iran, and so on. However, we can have an achievable goal of keeping our nightmares at bay, and we can define what those nightmares are. We don't want Iran to get a nuclear weapon. We don't want ISIS to, to consolidate a caliphate in northern Iraq and Syria. We don't want the humanitarian disaster of Syria to spiral endlessly and affect all of its neighbors. Okay. How do we calibrate a foreign policy that keeps our nightmares at bay? Let, that is the question. Let's let Paul Pillar respond. You know, Brett's absolutely right that we can't uh, think in terms of what our dreams are in the Middle East. And that's exactly part of what uh, Aaron and I are criticizing. Um, Again, Iraq 2003, the outstanding example, 2003 plus eight and a half years, we had a dream, or at least the makers of that war had a dream, of using the regime change in this central Middle Eastern state to stimulate free market economics and democracy, not just in Iraq, but throughout the region. It was the dream. It wasn't meeting a threat. It was trying to use military force to accomplish a more positive objective, and that's one of the ways we went wrong. You know, meeting real threats, absolutely. And Brett gave a couple of excellent examples in his initial presentation, like World War II. We couldn't agree more. But it's where we've gone beyond what about, meeting threats. Paul, what about the example he gave of the Yazidi community stuck on the top of a mountain facing genocide? That's not a threat to our national security. Was it our business militarily? Well, it was a threat to the Yazidis. And yeah. uh, I think there are some you know, very tactical decisions that have been very difficult for the administration to make. And we can get really down in the weeds in terms of you know, hitting this mountain rather than that mountain. And I don't think Aaron and I are saying... Uh, despite the efforts of our, our worthy opponents to, you know, frame the debate in a way that we have to say that every use of military force is for the worst. That's, of course, not what we're Aaron? saying. Yeah, may I just try to frame this? Look, we are stuck in a region we cannot transform and we cannot extricate ourselves from. 
We have interests, allies, and enemies there. When you cannot transform and you cannot extricate, that leaves only one course, which is, I would argue, my word, you transact. You essentially apply a cruel and unforgiving standard to what constitutes American national interests, and you willfully pursue those interests. You decide what's doable from what isn't, what is vital from what is discretionary. And when I say vital, what do I mean by vital? I mean an enterprise in which we are prepared to expend American lives, American treasure, and American credibility. That leads you back to the one thing most Americans do care about, and that is the protection of the continental United States, which, okay, it, let me, in effect, was let's, let's the basis Mike, for Obama's intervention. Mike Duran. Thanks. Uh, Aaron uh, used a nice phrase He's, uh, in his earlier comments. He said uh, that the Middle East was bad, uh, uh, or no, was uh, broken, angry, uh, and dysfunctional, uh, which I think makes a nice acronym, BAD. Uh, you're right. It's a very bad place. And you also say we have uh, interests, allies, and enemies there. We, we, it's a bad place. We want to keep it as far from us as possible, and yet we can't extricate ourselves. Uh, I agree with absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely all of that. I, I think we need a metaphor, uh, a, a kind of different metaphor. Uh, and I would say that the Middle East is like having diabetes, right? It's miserable. It's horrible. You can't, you can't get rid of it. You have to, you have to manage it. Uh, and so my argument is that uh, 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 that a bias toward action and a bias toward uh, military action is the best way to treat the disease, rather than Paul's way, which is to which is basically to cordon off the the area and stay away from it. Now we've already, as I said earlier, we've already seen we tried to cordon it off and move away and ignore it, and it comes to us just like just like diabetes. I just want to make one one point here um, about the importance of using military force. When, if we don't show a bias toward action, then we won't have allies. And ally, this is a, this is a counter uh, a counterintuitive uh, thing. We we were accustomed, as a result of the the kind of rhetoric that we heard from Paul, to think that when we use military force, we alienate people, uh, and, and we want to we want to believe. Remember, you remember there's this whole hard power, soft power thing. We want to believe that people in the Middle East love us for the reasons that we love ourselves. It's not true. Why the people in the Middle East want us primarily for one thing, and that is our ability to to provide security and the guarantee that we will provide them security. Look at Syria today. If we want to solve Syria, or if we just want to make it a little bit better and keep it at a distance, we want to put others out in front. We want to have allies. We would like to have Turkey, one of the most important countries there, go and do things in, in Syria. Well, let me, let They're me, not, let, if I just, one, one sentence, sorry. Yes. They're not going to go out and take risks in Turkey if they think that we might do like President Obama did a year ago with Syria and say, ah, you know what, I'm tired of this fight. They need to know we're going to go all the way with them and back them no matter what happens. Okay. And that requires military Paul, force. Paul Pillar, very good argument made by your opponents about our credibility, uh, which, which was put up in opposition to your saying that we make enemies by getting in there. And they're saying at least we're keeping allies <laughs> by, by going in and showing strength consistently. Can you uh, respond to that? Yeah, one of the big myths uh, about credibility is that any time we back away from something that's either a losing proposition or not worth the effort or isn't in defense of our key interests, that somehow people and governments all over the world are going to think, oh, the Americans are a bunch of weak-kneed people who aren't going to stand up to, to their vital interests. That is simply not the case, and there's academic research on this, uh, that that's not the way that other governments think or perceive us. And 
to understand that, how would we view the Russians or the Chinese or anyone else who backed away from or did not use military force or flex their muscles in something peripheral, something that was losing, something that was not in their vital interest? Would we say, oh, they're a bunch of weak-kneed, lily-livered weaklings, and they're not going to stick up for their vital interest? Of course not. We would assume they would, and that's the same thing with us. Brett Stevens. Look, um, what, what Paul said is just simply manifestly untrue. I think Paul and I would agree that we do not want, the American government does not want Israel to attack Iran uh, in the event that Iran or the Israelis perceive that Iran is approaching a nuclear capability, some, some, some uh, uh, point of no return. But when we show, when we tell the Israelis, when we announce that we have a red line in Syria, and then we erase that red line and the president goes before the cameras and says, oh, I never said red line. Uh, The world had a red line. It was someone else's red line. And by the way, I have this interesting diplomatic gambit that I've worked worked out with Sergei Lavrov. What does that tell decision makers in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv? It tells them that America's promise that it will not allow Iran to get nuclear weapons is a totally hollow promise that they cannot trust. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can ask the Israeli defense minister who is on record as saying this. So we have this issue of credibility that Paul has just uh, uh, raised and dismissed. We have exponentially increased the chance that Israel will become a foreign policy freelancer in what is perhaps the most fraught situation In the Middle East. Why? Because they don't trust the Americans. Same story with the Saudis. We used to have a close defense alliance with the Saudis. The Saudis don't trust us anymore, which is why John Kerry had to go on bended knee to Riyadh a few weeks ago to say, no, this time we're actually serious. Point made, and I want to take it to Aaron David Miller. And again, I haven't seen a piece of classified information since 2003, so what I'm about to say is what I'm about to say is my view. We have spent the last several years trying to preempt the Israelis from striking Iran prematurely on the assumption that negotiations and or sanctions, some combination of the two, would retard, ultimately undermine Iran's pursuit of a nuclear weapons capacity. Forget the weapon itself, just the threshold capacity. We have made commitments to the Israelis based on the assumption that if they stay their hand and Iran moves to weaponize, we we'll do this because we can do it better, we can do it more comprehensively and more definitively. This president may well be called on, Brett, to make good on that. And this is an issue for 2015 if these negotiations don't reach an agreement in November, which is highly unlikely in my view. Nobody in the Middle East believes he'll do that. Not a uh, single leader. Can you leader. come a little closer to your mic and just say that? Sorry, I said no, nobody in the Middle East believes he'll actually do that. Uh, he said it, or he has—he's signaled it, suggested it, and so on. But the, uh, there is nobody—nobody nobody in Riyadh, nobody in Jerusalem, nobody in Baghdad, and nobody in Tehran believes that he will actually use military force to stop Iran. Two you know, things—two things would undermine and destroy the Obama presidency. What remains of Obama's credibility? One is another consequential attack on the homeland. I'm not talking about a lone wolf-inspired attack. I'm talking about a directed attack that leads to scores of American casualties, regardless of his actions now. And the second, which three administrations have now committed themselves to, is Iran's crossing the threshold to weaponize. 
which is and and he, and he agrees if, with you. He agrees with you, and that's why he is caving in the negotiations well, and and, get, I, and, look, and, and making concession or, after concession after concession in order to get past the in order to hold them at this first and goal for the next. This uh, one two may years. not have a Hollywood ending. Okay, I want to come to questions in a minute, but I just want to do one more thing before we do that, and I want to look at the counterclaims that were made about the the promulgation of and the success of ISIS in the last year. And the two sides made directly opposed statements based on their theses that, that inaction caused ISIS and that intervention caused ISIS. And I want to maybe split those into two. And first, to go back to Paul Pillar, your argument that ISIS is there and successful because the U.S. got into the situation and messed it up. Just Make that point in about 40 seconds, and we'll have your opponents respond to it. There was no such thing as ISIS or a forerunner of it before we invaded Iraq. And once we did, uh, and the multifaceted civil war got rolling, a major ingredient of it was Sunni Arab uh, rejection and resistance, both to the Shiites and to us because we were seen as uh, overthrowing, which we did, a Sunni-dominated regime and opening the way to uh, Shiite rule, which is exactly what happened. And part of that, one of the most extreme parts of that resistance to what we did, was what was then known as al-Qaeda in Iraq under Mr. Zarqawi, which is the group that evolved into what we now know today as ISIS or Islamic State. Okay, I want to go to the other side and say that's a coherent statement. Before making your case that it was inaction that did that, what's your response to his argument? It's very simple. ISIS is the creation of the last five years of inaction. Above all, no, 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 but... You, that's the part I don't want you to get to. I want you to find, tell us what's, not, what's so good about your argument, what's wrong with his argument, which is not the same discussion. And right. then I'll come to you. Well, the, the problem he with He makes his, a logical argument that we came in as Americans, we picked sides, we took the wrong sides, we fomented on to Americans there, and well, built support for the other it, side. It's perfectly simple. It's not as if jihadism uh, was born in March of 2003. Uh, that's just simply not true. We had jihadi groups all over uh, the Middle East. And what we know about jihadism is that the jihadis thrive in areas of chaos, lack of governance, and that's what we've allowed to expand and multiply, not, not simply in Iraq, but above all in Syria through a policy of deliberate inaction. So, Brett, right, the, the, we, the, the piece of their argument that by, that by our being there and stirring the pot, we exacerbated the situation that led to ISIS, you just reject out of hand. Of course, we weren't there, to st- we weren't there at all. That's we are right. talking about ISIS is a creation of the last few years. You had never heard of ISIS until about two years ago. They changed their name. Can I just add one point? ISIS, ISIS is a response to two failed and or failing states and a pool of Sunni grievances, which mount faster than the numbers of moderate Sunni rebels that we can stand up. Grievances generated by Assad, and grievances generated by Maliki. Precisely. Is the inter- precisely. You, Aaron, you can you are assuming Aaron, somehow Aaron, that we Aaron, could can, fix that? Aaron, can you just come closer to your mic? Right sure. You, 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 you're assuming somehow we had the power, the incentive, the motivation after the two longest wars in American history to basically put the Syrian Humpty Dumpty and Iraq back together again? That's your assumption? You think but, that would stand? But, Aaron, that doesn't, that doesn't answer their, their point to your no, point. That, Brett, that, Brett, how, did the Americans, how did the Americans make ISIS, let's say, exacerbate the... To uh, the extent we enabled the weakness of Iraq and Syria, Brett has a point. But I do not believe we bear the primary responsibility for... ISIS's emergence. It, it was Larry Summers who said, in the history of the world, nobody 
ever washed a rental car? You know why you don't wash rental cars? Because you care only because you care only about what you own. And the problem in this region is a lack of ownership. It's a lack of gender equality. It's a lack of transparency, accountability, pluralism, and the emergence of national leaders okay. who care about the vast majority of their Mike people. Turan. That helped I just want to point out that you just undermined Paul's argument. I thought because, so, too. Because you... I was having trouble following. No, no, you did, you, because, you, because you said, you, you basically said that it's, it's the bad qualities of this region that are generating, that are generating these actors, these malevolent actors, extent, rather than, our, rather than extent, anything that yes, we did. Yes, to the extent and, we and, enabled it, we, and we, we deserve a responsibility, look, but not look, the even primary if you say that, Even if you say we're the prime mover, which I don't accept, but if I accept it for the sake of discussion, that we're the prime mover and we set this thing rolling, right, the only right. solution to it now is a, mili- is a military solution. And that's the, that's, the, that's the conclusion that President Obama came to, and that's the only conclusion that a logical person can come to. Paul Pillar. Brett was absolutely right about radical jihadists capitalizing on chaotic situations. And in this main country we're talking about, Iraq, we caused the chaos. We overthrew the regime, and we didn't have a plan for what followed. It's Iraq and Syria. It's Iraq and Syria. We had nothing to do with Syria. Nothing. Brett, you may have made the point already in your response to his, but in what way did uh, American inaction lead to the spread of Look, ISIS. it's a matter of record and a matter of uh, fact, which I'm sure at least Aaron will agree with, that uh, Iraq was at peace in 2009, that al-Qaeda was defeated in 2009 <laughs> through a combination – this is – let me explain why – through a combination of the application of American force, which gave confidence to the Sunni tribes in Anbar province that we were a reliable partner that meant business, that would stick around, and that would support them when they, when, when, when we, when they needed us there. And what did we do? We withdrew, and we withdrew entirely because we wanted to pretend that the Middle East didn't exist, that these problems way out there wouldn't come back to haunt us. And that was the fundamental mistake that we made. Look, we can relitigate the Iraq war, and Paul would love to relitigate the Iraq war endlessly because he has a winning debate card there. But the issue is not, I mean, why don't we just simply go back to 1920 or Sykes-Picot? We could have that debate uh, in 1916 as well. And there's an endless chain of causation here. But the immediate, well, ca- the immediate cause of the problems, of the jihadi problem, is that we allowed Iraq and Syria to descend into chaos because we believed that the best policy was a policy of inaction. What we are living with now, jihadi movements that have trebled in size in the last four years, happened with a president who wanted nation building at home, not abroad. Well, that point may be true, but I want to give Paul Paul a chance to speak because you've had uh, our unofficial clock shows you racking it up. Unless, Paul, you want (laughs) to unless, Paul, you want to yield. But before you do that, I want to say this. This is an Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. We have two teams of two debating this motion. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. On the side arguing for the motion, Aaron David Miller and Paul Pillar. On the side against the motion, Mike Duran and Brett Stevens. Paul Pillar. Uh, just Iraq, most assuredly, was not at peace in 2009. And we're not going back to Sykes-Picot or, or running the uh, causation back decades. We're talking about problems right now, the very issues we're wrestling with right now, that are a continuation of what began 
uh, in the case of Iraq in 2001. Let's go to some questions from the audience. So right down here. A microphone will be brought to you, and when it does, we'd appreciate it if you could stand, hold the mic about as far away from your mouth as this mic is from mine, about a fist, tell us your name, and ask your question. Tightly, tightly focused question. Thank you. My name is Jerry Orstrom. Up till now, much of the discussion has been about the past. Yes, the recent past, but still the past, and the good and the bad and the ugly of what happened in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and so forth, and a little bit about what caused ISIS to evolve. My question is, what about where we are right now? What about our attack on ISIS? What is the good and the bad and the ugly of that, the consequences, outcomes, good or bad, can we win an air attack? Do we need boots on the ground? What will the consequences of that be, good and bad, and why? Will that mus- muscle flexing make things worse? <laughs> Let's put that to Aaron David Miller. I mean, I think, again... Uh, Aaron, again, on the it's, mic. Thanks. It's the Goldilocks approach, which I happen to support. It's trying to find a balance between risk readiness and risk aversion. An effort. First of all, we already have boots on the ground, special operators in Iraq. And I suspect over the next year and a half, that number could double and triple. You should also not be surprised to learn one day that, in effect, we already have boots on the ground in Syria, and we will have additional boots on the ground, but not the massive redeployment of thousands of American combat forces. That's one red line that will not turn pink with respect to this particular president. The campaign is effective for undermining, retarding, preempting, keeping ISIS Nusra Khorasan on the defensive. If we hit them repeatedly, they'll have less time to spend planning attacks. But if you asked anybody from the CIA today what is the most imminent threat to the continental United States right now, they won't say ISIS. They won't say Iran. They'll say AQAP. Okay, Mike Duran. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian you, Peninsula. You know that uh, before, in the, in the green room, before we, we started, Aaron came in and said, I don't think I'm going to use my whole seven minutes. I'm gonna... <laughs> it, was a debating, it was a debating tactic. Um, the, the problem, the, the, the current campaign um, will set them back, clearly, and put them on their back feet. Uh, but it, we, it's impossible to win with this campaign um, because – what we have in from Baghdad to Damascus, Baghdad to Beirut, is a problem of the Sunni society. We have a Shiite government in, in we have a Shiite government in Iraq aligned with Iran, using horrible, murderous sectarian forces on the ground against the Sunnis, and we have a, a Shiite government in Damascus allied with Iran, or a, 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 a non-Sunni government in Damascus also using horrible, murderous. Uh, sectarian uh, forces su- supported by uh, by Iran, and our air force is coming in, and by intention or by accident, is is changing the balance of power on the ground in favor of the uh, of the Shiites against the Sunnis, which is which is not going to give us the ability to root out ISIS. So well, we need to separate the local population Sunnis from ISIS, and we can't do that in, in this conflict. Mike, and I want to bring this question back to Aaron as well. In terms of our motion, this is a, ma- a muscle flexing, and you're saying that it's not going to make things better. You're not it, saying it will make things worse, but you're just not saying it's not going to make not things gonna, worse. It, we, we, there's no, the, the president has not defined, uh, he has not defined victory, and he is on a path that will not achieve victory. And, and Paul, in r- risking giving your opponents their point that 
you might agree with some of their <laughs> sometimes you might think force is uh, called for in this case do you think that this muscle flexing is called for or do you think it will make things worse well you know, one one difference we've had between the two sides of the stage here john is that our, our opponents keep trying to make this a pro or anti obama administration thing but that's definitely not the case and i think uh, aaron and i both uh, can see pluses and minuses in what's taking place on the, on the isis front the one uh, substantive point i'd add john is that is this issue of, of political will, because ultimately the fate of this group, uh, certainly in Iraq, but also in Syria, is going to depend on the politics in the capital, and we've had some encouraging uh, signs in Baghdad, but further political evolution so that Iraqi Sunnis know that they've got a future in an Iraq that is not dominated by ISIS. That's, a, that's, that's wishful thinking, fantasy, total fantasy. But, well, Mike, Mike, actually, I don't, want, I don't want to... We got rid of Maliki. That's, that, that's kind of wandering off our question about what our choices should be, I believe. And so I just want to bring it back to the principle of the debate, uh, question being asked by the debate, uh, Paul. In this case, is the muscle flexing going to make things worse, or is this not one of those cases? I think overall, the more deeply we get immersed into sectarian and internal conflicts in either Syria or Iraq, the greater are all the hazards that we talked about of of making things worse. Do you think we're on that? That does, not, does, that does not mean there are not appropriate uses of military force, such as rescuing Yazidis on a mountaintop. Do you think we're on that path already? I think the path we are on carries much risk of escalation to damaging uh, directions that do make things worse. I want to have the other side respond to that, President. You know, the, the Israelis are great philosophers of uh, Middle Eastern uh, war, diplomacy, and overall conduct, and it boils down to a wonderful Israeli friend uh, phrase, uh, it's depend. Um, <laughs> Boy, thanks, God. And... Um, and it's a wonderful <laughs> phrase because it depends. It depends on the kind of force the president uses. It depends on whether he's smart about it, whether he listens to his generals, whether his considerations are mainly political or they're mainly strategic, whether he's looking to completely defeat ISIS, to simply degrade them, how much he's thinking about the view that our allies in the region take of us and our willingness to apply force as well as, our, as, as, well as the way our enemies look, uh, look at us. Michael, I think, came up with a defining metaphor, and this is a good question. I thought it was a wonderful first question to begin with. We are not going to solve ISIS. We are not going to solve Iraq, and we're certainly not going to solve 1,400 years of Sunni-Shia sectarian conflict. What we can try to do is manage this situation so that, A, it it, it inflicts a serious strategic, military, and psychological blow against ISIS. B, it creates the possibility for other actors in Syria who are real, who exist, who might become more attractive and more popular to a majority of the population that is enchanted neither with Assad nor, uh, um, uh, 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 nor, with, uh, nor with ISIS. And we might also demonstrate to our Arab allies, um, to our Persian enemies, to our Israeli friends, that we are a serious player that takes a group or takes, takes something like the rise of ISIS seriously. Okay, I'm going That's to go. the issue. Another we question. want to manage. Ma'am, Ma'am uh, you're wearing green. Yep. Mike's coming on your right-hand side. If you could stand up, please. Uh, my question is for the four side. Um, assuming practicality that the sanctions are now becoming squishy, do you think it's worse to flex American muscle than to allow the Middle East to go into a nuclear arms race? 
I don't know what you mean by sanctions getting squishy. We can argue all night about sanctions that have worked in some cases and not worked in others, and there are all kinds of variables that take too much time to come into play. But I would mention just one example, and, and we've cited it in other ways in the past. Libya, that was a successful use of sanctions against Gaddafi, and he made this tremendous turn away from his previous outrageous behavior with regard to his unconventional weapons programs, weapons of mass destruction, and his rampant involvement in international terrorism. And back in the 1990s, after several years of multilateral sanctions in which he felt both the economic hurt and the political hurt of being a pariah, he changed. He got out of the international terrorism business, and he opened up and gave up his unconventional weapons program. And that was all without use or even the threat of military force. That was a successful case. That's a a fanciful chronology. He gave up his weapons program after a massive application of American force in 2003. It was the example of the the invasion of Iraq that turned him. And by the way, it was also the example. That's actually wrong. It was also the the invasion of Iraq that, that compelled the Iranians to stop their weaponization, uh, their weaponization you, program. I, I, know, I know it is wrong because I was personally involved in the negotiations with the Libyans back in 1999. I was four years before that. I was personally that. involved with the uh, in four the, years. I was personally involved that. in the negotiations. And that was after that was after the Libyan Wait, we've got some real insiders here. Mike, will you wait? And Paul, you make your point. I'll come back to you. Brett, 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 Brett. Hang on, Paul. Gaddafi made those decisions in the 1990s. When I sat down across the table from his intelligence chief, he had already decided to get out of the unconventional weapons programs and get out of international terrorism. That was four years before his, the invasion okay. of Iraq. His, his, his intelligence chief, Musa Kusa, uh, one, was his name. Great name, yeah, Musa Kusa. Musa Kusa once had a beautiful villa overlooking the Mediterranean. Uh, and he came home one day to, to, his, to his villa, and it was turned into rubble, bulldozed into nothing, right? Uh, and there was a message for him that the, that the leader wants to see you. Uh, and so he went to go see the leader. And the leader said, Musa, that villa. And he said, yes. He said, I didn't like it. It wasn't right for you. And he handed him some keys, and he said, I've built another villa for you, and I want you to have that. And he gave him this other villa. Uh, and so what was the message? The message was, don't get too big for your britches. Everything you've got comes from me. Everything. And I can destroy you in an instant. That's the mentality of a leader in the Middle East. And you've got to ask yourself, if that's who we're dealing with, do we deal with them with soft power or do we deal with them with hard power? All right, let's go to another question, sir. Yes, uh, you're standing up. Yep. Mike's coming from your left. Uh, my question is also for the Could you tell us your name, your name, please? I'm Alex Elfakir. I'm a student at Princeton University, and uh, thank you for having me here this evening. Uh, Mr. Uh, Pillar and Mr. Miller, uh, your point of only fighting smart wars is well taken. However, military force is not bound to times of war. It is the threat of force, the capability and willingness to use it, from localized strikes to ground invasions that shapes the de- decisions Sir, of regional can, can you just and local to your actors. Question? Yes. Thanks. How can the United States effectively influence uh, the perceptions, calculations, actions, and goals of its adversaries, particularly those who only deal in terms of violence, without a muscular foreign policy. Thank you. Well, you know, the notion somehow that... Can you move in? Uh, the notion you? somehow that we, have a, we can have a cookie-cutter strategy that is applicable to any number of situations in a region that is so fundamentally complex, in my judgment, is simply not possible. 
he, we, but he, we, he wasn't asking for a cookie cutter. I no, think no, no, was, but you're, you're asking for a, a sort of Rx, a prescription for how to uh, force smaller powers. No, he wasn't. He wasn't saying, what do you do all the time? I, honestly, I don't think his question was in, in those situations where you are up against a guy who is, who is only going to respond to tough force, how do you get through to him if you're not going to be a hard ass about it? I think that, in, that as long as you calculate means and ends and that, in, in effect, military power, the projection of it, is an instrument to serve a set of political goals, then military power can be an effective tool. What do you do, however, in a situation like Egypt, where, in, in effect, they are an ally, former ally, still our ally? Uh, we have a freedom agenda. We want to promote democracy in a country that um, is, uh, since the overthrow of Mubarak, has been dominated by a struggle between the military on one hand and the Islamists on the other. We have interests in Egypt. We've reduced their military assistance. We haven't threatened sanctions. We have to be artful and relatively sophisticated. My, my, my basic point is, in a, in a region in turmoil, it's simply going to be very difficult to create an action-reaction uh, phenomenon. That's why I go back to the notion of understanding what our core interests are, identifying them, and then trying to protect them. Let me go to this side because uh, Aaron has made that point a few times about core interests. He's been pretty clear about them. But you had us rescuing Yazidis in Syria, and we didn't really get very far with that question. I don't want to delve into it too much. But but what are our core interests in terms of using force? Well, one thing is we don't want to allow genocide to happen to happen against a helpless population of women and children tra- starving and trapped on a mountain. So That's that not- is a core interest. Yes. Well, that is, that is a core democratic value, I would say, and we are a country where values do often coincide with Let me stop you interest. and ask the other side. Is that a core interest? Look at our behavior. How can you argue it's a core interest? Well, we are incredibly hypocritical when it comes to humanitarian intervention. We decide what is feasible, what is convenient, and we essentially ignore the tough cases. Bill Clinton, to this day, and the late Fuad uh, uh, Ajami called him to count. This is your Rwanda, President Obama. So you're saying so it's we not, took a th- these are not core interests? I, I mean, look, our interests. I'm just looking for clarity. I know, you're looking for a short answer. I understand no, that. I yes or no that. is a short. Our, <laughs> <laughs> our interests and our values and our policies are constantly at war with one another. On the issue of genocide, we have not been consistent. Not since Roosevelt refused to be more ambitious with respect to. Uh, trying to overcome the military's opposition to bombing the railways to the concentration camps. We have taken a pass on genocide humanitarian intervention in Rwanda, okay. in Congo, so, in Syria. So Mike, Mike, Mike Duran, your opponent, is saying that it's not a core interest because we've demonstrated again and again that it's not. And why don't you answer that briefly, and then I want to go to another question while we have time. No, values are a, values are a core interest uh, because we're a democracy, and uh, the, American people, uh, the American people demand uh, that, uh, that our... Uh, that our leadership respect uh, our values. Um, uh, we we can. But, but, we, but your opponent is saying we haven't shown that we really believe in that. Well, the the, fa- the fact that, that there's no human being that is a that that uh, that is the perfect representative of his or her values, but it doesn't mean that they don't have them and don't aspire to uh, don't aspire to uh, apply them. Brett, I was just going to say we're a country that, in a sense, is unique and that we often find ourselves defining our interests by our values rather than the, uh, than the other way around. And by the way, a reputation for being a humane hegemon is good for us in the long run. It allows us to maintain a Pax Americana in the way that the Russians were not able to maintain a Soviet peace in their sphere of influence because 
At some level, countries around the world understand that we operate differently from the Iranians, the Chinese, and the Russians. And it's what makes makes countries want to be our allies, our friends, our trading partners. So, yes, uh, we do have an interest in making sure when we can tip the scales at relatively low cost to ourselves that we shouldn't allow atrocities to happen. That's not the kind of country we were born to be. And I think this is a common-sense proposition all of you would agree with. Uh, in the back, they're wearing a necktie. Yes, sir. If you just put your hand up, if you can stand up. Thanks. Hi. Um, I have a question for the far side. Could you tell us your name, please? Uh, hi. My name is Kaas Joshi. Uh, Mike Tenson created a brilliant structure to think about the impact, one where uh, whether it stops any good process and whether it generates any bad process in the future. And you crash the argument to say it doesn't, it doesn't actually stop any good process, the military intervention. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what your thoughts are about what, what, what are the bad bad process that, that the military intervention would generate that you don't think it would. Wait, so you're saying what, what are the bad consequences of inaction? No, I think I, I, think I oh. got him. He was saying what are, the, what, are some of the bad, what are some of the bad things that our action could generate? Is that what you're, is that what you're saying? Yeah. But why, yeah. Would, why would you want this side to believe that this side would want to give you all that ammunition? I can, answer, that I can answer that. <laughs> okay. I can answer, all right. I can, I can answer it. Uh, uh, um, and I hopefully will not uh, shoot myself in the foot in doing so. Uh, lo- look, the, the problem that you have is that, um, is that we can never know the future. Um, so it's always a question of do the risks of inaction, are the risks of inaction worse than the risks of action? That's what it, uh, th- that's what it comes down to. Um, and so that's why I argued that we should have a bias toward action uh, because – Lack of action de- destroys our alliances, and if, if we desire to keep this region at a distance, then we have to persuade other actors on the ground to take action in order so that we don't have to go in unilaterally. The, 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 the Paul Pilar thesis here is that if we, if we are always showing restraint and keeping the region at a distance, then we won't have to use unilateral action. And I'm saying, no, it's actually the opposite. The more we, the more we, don't, flex our, the more we don't flex our muscles, the more likely we make it that we're going to have to go in alone and massively because we won't have any allies. Let's let Paul Pillar respond. You know, Mike now has twice used phraseology that I think, uh, John, shows some of the differences we have despite all that wonderful agreement we had earlier. And he mispronounced and, your name. Oh, that's sorry. right. Well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hit him on yeah. that, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, a bias, you know, I don't think our foreign policy ought to be biased one way or the other, toward action or toward inaction. It ought to be an unbiased weighing of costs and benefits and weighing of those core interests that we were talking about a moment ago and not come at it with a preconception that we ought to be acting more than inacting or the other way around. There's a system. There's a system Mike, out let there me just, that has Let me just do logic. one bit of radio. I'll come to you to repeat that. Sir, repeat that. Oh, wait, wait. <laughs> and I need no laughter. I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. The team arguing against the motion. Just very briefly, it was our bias toward inaction. And by the way, I'm using bias in an unbiased sense. I presume you're all grammatically and syntactically literate. It was our bias toward inaction that has made the Syrian problem, which began as a peaceful uprising against a brutal regime, turn into a quagmire that is, in fact, very difficult to figure out. 
It, will, it is our bias toward inaction which has allowed the crisis in Iran, the nuclear crisis in Iran, to that lady's question there, to go from being a potentially manageable problem to being a particularly difficult problem, not, the le- not least because if Iran either acquires a nuclear, program, a, a nuclear weapon or is seen as being in a kind of a, uh, a zone of ambiguity, we will soon be faced with a Middle East in which Saudi Arabia has a nuclear weapon, perhaps the Algerians get a nuclear weapon, uh, perhaps uh, the Egyptians get a nuclear weapon or the, or, the, or the Turks, all of them countries capable of getting them. And then our problems will be that much more serious because we won't be looking at a kind of symmetrical uh, standoff. We will be looking at these kind of overlapping multiple asymmetries. Are the Turks uh, enemies of Israel or are they enemies of Iran? Are Brett, the Saudis let me, let me, enemies of Brett, Israel let me cut in because so of time. I want to let Mike Duran say something, and then we'll give the last word to this panel. Mike Duran. The, we have two problems in the, in the Middle East. Malevolent actors that want to do us harm, like al-Qaeda and the, uh, and the Iranians, and our friends. Uh, our friends, all you, there's a there's a big frenemy problem in the Middle East that we're all that we're all familiar with, and the problem is if we sit back and do nothing, it doesn't mean that our friends do nothing either. They go and they do things to look after their interests, and they use um, tools and follow policies that are dangerous for us. So if we want to vector them, we have to take action. Last word from the side arguing for you know, the motion, uh, Paul Pillar. Brett's uh, mentioned several times this Iranian nuclear thing. I wish we had more time to talk about that. But that's one thing where the U.S. administration, the current one, has taken a lot of action. They seized the opportunity to, uh, to have the negotiations that have taken place over the last year, which gives us the best chance to deal with exactly the sorts of threats, if you're worried about them, that Brett described. Military force... Flexing that muscle isn't going to do any good because besides not destroying the capability of Iran to build a nuclear weapon, if they really wanted to, it gives the best possible incentive to construct a nuclear deterrent. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing remarks from each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. And remember how you voted beforehand. This is their last chance for them to change your minds. You'll be asked to vote again right after these closing remarks, which will be in just a few minutes from now. On to round three, closing statements. First, summarizing his position in support of the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Paul Pillar, a senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown and former national security officer. Well, first I want to thank uh, Brett and Mike for their very spirited uh, contributions to this debate, and John for your very even-handed moderation, and most of all to my colleague Aaron. You know, we Americans have an awful lot of faith uh, in our ability to do great things overseas, it is well-founded faith because we have done some great things, including with the use of military force, like Brett mentioned earlier in his opening remarks. World War II is probably the best example of all. But some things even we, the superpower, can't do even with our military might. I've served in the U.S. military and in a foreign conflict. In my case, it was as an Army officer in the Vietnam War. That war was an extremely painful lesson to us, the American people, about the limitations of what we can do with military force. And among the bad consequences it had was getting to the issue of credibility. It reduced the credibility that the U.S. would use that military instrument in other better ways because of the American people's reaction to what had happened. Enough years went by, and we finally got over what happened 
and what we called the Vietnam Syndrome. And one way we demonstrated we got over, with it, over it was uh, another thing that Brett mentioned, the splendid victory in the Middle East reversing Saddam Hussein's aggression against Kuwait in 1991. But the problem is, since then, we've been thinking more and doing more of using military force not just to reverse someone else's aggression, like in World War II or Operation Enduring Freedom uh, or uh, Desert Storm, we got into other things, changing regimes we didn't like, or taking part in someone else's civil war, or trying to inject democracy through the barrel of a gun. Leadership is not just flexing muscle, it is having the wisdom to know the limitations and the costs and the risks, and most of all, to follow the Hippocratic principle of first, do no harm. Thank you, Paul Thank Piller. You. The motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Brett Stevens, a foreign affairs columnist and member of the editorial board at The Wall Street Journal. Uh, Well, thank you. And thanks uh, particularly to Aaron and Paul for this wonderful debate and to the entire audience. Um, Mike, I'll get to you in a second. Um, uh, For the last few years... Uh, the United States has conducted precisely the kind of diplomacy and geopolitical strategy that uh, Paul Pillar has spent this evening uh, uh, advocating. We have focused on nation-building at home. We have had a president who has told us time and again that the tide of war is receding. We have had a president whose bias, generally speaking, has been toward inaction not action. We have had an administration that believes that the best course for the United States is to reduce its footprint, um, particularly in the Middle East, to pivot away from that region, to look at Asia, to look at our own problems at home, with the idea that in so doing, that region would perhaps sort out its own problems and affect us less. And yet the reality is exactly the opposite of what we have seen. A RAND Corporation study showed that the number of jihadists in the Middle East, of jihadi groups and jihadi fighters, more than doubled between 2010 and 2014, precisely during the time that the Obama administration was saying the tide of war is receding, and precisely during the time that we were essentially following the, the, the counsel of our opponents on the other side of the stage. We have not made the world go away. We have not made the world a, 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 safer, a safer place. The world is more dangerous today than it was a few years ago. The world is a, is a scarier place, not just in the Middle East, but Russia and China. Machiavelli once said, the best policy is to be a firm friend and a thorough foe. For the last few years, we have been neither. We have to change that or we will imperil our security here in New York. Thank you, Brett Stevens. And the motion is, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Aaron David Miller, Vice President for New Initiatives at the Wilson Center and former U.S. Mideast negotiator. Uh, Thanks, John. And, Paul, thank you for uh, articulate, compelling, and gallant defense. And Mike and uh, Brett, Mike and Brett, I appear with you guys all the time. We have to do this again. Two days before the Camp David summit, um, President Clinton... Uh, during a briefing, remarked to us, he knew the odds were long, that trying and failing was better than not having tried at all. And I remember how inspired I was by his remarks. 
The more I thought about it, the more I watched this angry, broken, dysfunctional reason, region, and Republicans and de- Democrats alike equally uh, trying to navigate a course between too much and too little. I began to understand that trying and failing is better than not trying at all is an appropriate slogan for a high school college football team. It is not a substitute for a foreign policy of the most consequential nation on earth. We need to think before we act. And we need to understand, above all, that the dividing line for a smart foreign policy is not between left and right, not between liberal and conservative, not between Republicans and Democrats. It's between smart on one hand and dumb on the other. And the only question that you have to decide, and I implore you to vote for this motion, because I think our arguments, Paul's in particular, has struck the right balance between risk readiness on one hand risk aversion on the other. A clear definition of when U.S. military power and its projection is important and vital and when it is not. Three questions need to be asked. And if I'm too risk averse in this region, the historical record of the last 20 years validates my risk aversion. Three questions. Number one, what are we trying to achieve by deploying military force? Number two, Do we have the means at our disposal to accomplish our ends? And number three, above all, what will it cost? You ask those questions, you're firm and resolute, and American interests can be protected. Thank you, Aaron David Miller. Our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Here to summarize his position against this motion, Mike Duran. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and former senior director at the National Security Council. Thank you, John, uh, Paul, Aaron. It really has been an honor and a pleasure. It's really been great. But, Brett, working with you has been the, 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 the highlight of the evening for me. Uh, uh, Paul would have us believe that we can stay back, sit back away from the region, and not be involved in the sectarian fight on the ground. Uh, and it's simply not true. I, I once uh, had a, a good friend who uh, went on the Peace Corps to Tuvalu, a little Pacific nation that most of us probably haven't heard of. I had never heard of it until I met him. Uh, and I found out that the people of Tuvalu were very angry with us uh, because we had come up with some fishing regulations that uh, destroyed their economy. Of course, nobody in America even knew that we did this, right? It's the same thing in, in the Middle East. We are, we are judged by our action and we are judged by our inaction. Um, and we are participants by the nature of our size and our historic role in the Middle East in the sectarian conflict, in all of the conflicts in the region, whether we think we are or not, whether we stay out or whether we don't. Um, so the question is not whether to intervene or, or not to intervene. It's how to shape what's going on there. And the most important resource that we have in order to keep us from having to have massive interventions like the kind that we had in, um, uh, in uh, Iraq in two, 2003 is to build up our alliances, and the only way we can build up our alliances is by providing security to our friends. And right now, our friends in the Middle East don't believe that they can rely on us because time and again, over the last, uh, uh, over the last decade, we have backed away from commitments to them. Uh, and that's why we have to use military force so that we will not have the kind of wars that Paul wants to prevent. Thank you, Mike Duran. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued best. 
We're asking you again to go to the keypad at your seat that will register your vote. We'll get the readout almost instantaneously. Remember, the motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. If you agree with the motion, push number one. If you disagree, push number two. If you became or remain undecided, push number three. And you can ignore the other keys. They are not live. And we'll have the results in just about a minute and a half. Uh, and while we're waiting for that to happen, um, I, I, too, want to... All the debaters got up here and congratulated each other and thanked one another for a great evening. I, I think we actually did carve a pretty good debate out of this uh, near agreement at the beginning. Uh, we, we found your fault lines, and more importantly, we found that they're sincere, passionate, and important. But you brought uh, a, a spirit of um, decency and respect to this whole thing. I congratulate, congratulate all of you for doing that. Uh, and I'd also like to thank everybody who got up and asked a question. All, I didn't have to throw anything out tonight. The questions were all good, so thanks to everybody for getting up and doing that. Um, again, as I said at the beginning, we would love it if you would tweet about the debate. Our ha uh, Twitter handle is at IQ2US. The hashtag for this debate is Mideast Debate. Uh, our next debate is here at the Kaufman Center. Uh, it's Wednesday, October 22nd. The motion is Income Inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. We have an economist and a one percenter on each side of this debate. Uh, for the motion, we have Elise Gould. She's a senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute, and she studies wages, poverty, inequality, and health care. Her partner is Nick Hanauer, who is an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. His TED Talk on uh, the true job creators went uh, viral back in 2010. Against the motion, Edward Connard. Uh, Connard, he's a former partner at Bain uh, and author of Unintended Consequences. Oh, we should have had him here tonight. Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong. His partner is Scott Winship, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute um, who studies living standards and economic mobility. Um, and in a week, uh, October 7th, we're going to be in Philadelphia at the National Constitution Center. Uh, the debate that night is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Tickets from all of, for all of our debates are available at our website, iq2us.org. And I wanted to let you know also... Um, that we have a new uh, app that you can get through the Apple Store and the Android uh, Google Play Store um, that lets you watch all of the debates that we've ever done, which is now 97 after tonight-ish, um, and, uh, and, and what's upcoming, and you can comment, and, uh, and it's uh, free, and it's actually a lovely app. Okay, so it's all in. I have the final results. The motion is this, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. That was the motion, and before hearing the debate, our live audience here in New York voted this way. 26% agreed with the motion, 31% were against, 43% were undecided. That's a large figure for us. So those are the first results. Remember, now you have voted a second time, and the winner is the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms from the first vote to the second. So let's go to the second vote. On the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 40 that's 26% to 45%. They picked up 19 percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team arguing against the motion, their second vote was 31%. Uh, their first vote, 31%. Second vote, 45%. They pulled up 14 percentage points. It's not quite enough. The team arguing for the motion wins our debate. That is, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. 
Our congratulations to them. And thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared. We'll see you next time.